You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Thursday, November 9th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation, the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs, and the Lakshmi Mittal South Asia Institute hosted a seminar featuring Ashutosh Barshni, Director of the Center for Contemporary South Asia, Sol Goodman Professor of Political Science and International and Public Affairs at Brown University. Scott Mainwaring, the Jorge Paulo Lehman Professor of Brazil Studies at HKS Moderated. This event was a part of the Ash Center's Democracy in Hard Places seminar series. Let's listen in. in hard places. You may be thinking, what is a hard place? What do you mean? And what we mean by a hard place are the kinds of places that scholars have long thought to be inhospitable to democracy, right? Places that are poor, that have high levels of illiteracy, that have high levels of ethnic fragmentation, that may live in undemocratic neighborhoods surrounded by neighbors that are not democracies, and that may even have long legacies themselves of military tutelage or other non-democratic forms of government. And this program is animated by the idea that though some places may be harder to get democracy in than others, in nowhere is the achievement of democracy impossible. We look around the world, we see all kinds of places, hard places, that are nonetheless democracies. Mongolia, Benin, Senegal, Ghana, and the country that we are going to be speaking about tonight, India. And so the question for us is, what is the secret of those places? And what can we learn from the academic study of those places that uh, practitioners can apply to bringing democracy and, and, and strengthening democracy in other terrain that is similarly inhospitable? So we've got several activities. The primary activity that this program has is the speaker series that brings to you the best speakers uh, at Harvard at any given hour. Um, (laughs) And the aim of this speaker series is to create an intellectual community around these these issues. The second activity that we have is a fellows program that brings scholars and practitioners here to the Kennedy School and which we'll be developing in in the coming year. And the third, is a serious research program that we plan to kick off with a a conference in the next academic year. So I hope all of you will stay tuned for developments on this program, and I hope that you will contact either me or Professor Mainwaring if you're interested in somehow being involved in this uh, effort. Before I turn it over to Professor Mainwaring, who will introduce this evening's speaker, I have been tasked with making uh, three announcements. of three, the three next events in this series. So on Monday, November uh, 13th at 4.15 p.m., we will have a talk on Venezuela's uh, democratic uh, breakdown by uh, Francisco Marquez Lara, a graduate of the Kennedy School and a democracy activist in that country. On Thursday, November 16th, also at the same time, we'll have a talk by Professor Isabella Morris of Columbia University, who will talk about democratic reforms in Imperial Germany. Uh, And then finally, on Thursday, November 30th, we'll have a talk by uh, Larry Diamond of the Hoover Institute at Stanford, who will talk about uh, democracy's decline around the world. And with that, I thank you all for attending, and I turn it over to my partner in crime, Professor Scott Mainwaring. Thank you so much, Tarek. Um, So 
We are so delighted that Ashutosh Varshini is joining us as the inaugural speaker in this series. I had the great um, privilege of having Ashu as a, as a colleague at Notre Dame 15 years ago, more or less? 99 to 2001. Okay, well, he was one of my favorite colleagues ever. Mm. He's, I think, you know, maybe the most, one, certainly one of the most interesting scholars in the world writing on democracy in India. And he's also one of the most interesting scholars in the world writing on religion and democracy, ethnic conflict and democracy, anywhere. So Ashu has just really been, you know, when you think about um, major contributions to democracy studies, he's one of the people who's really, you know, very prominent on that list. He's also contributed very important work on political economy. Um, so he's a wide-ranging, you know, very important scholar on in multiple fields. He is the Saul. Let me see if I can. The Saul Goldman Professor at Brown University. He previously taught at Harvard, um, Michigan, and Notre Dame. Not quite in that order. It was the Harvard, Notre Dame, Michigan. And now he's been at Brown for quite a while. And he also directs the program on Asian studies there. So um, this is, you know, one of the amazing cases of democracy in the world. And we'll get to hear about it from one of the great scholars working on these issues. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Scott. Uh, only friends can give an introduction like that. I've had the special privilege of Scott's intellectual friendship now for 20 years, so thank you for the invitation, Tariq and Scott. Um, um, let me uh, make a few preliminary remarks. You can all hear me. <clears throat> this talk is actually the outline of a book that I hope to write during my sabbatical year, uh, which is next year. And therefore, feedback um, will, is very important for me and for the evolution of the argument. Um, the work that I have done so far in the last uh, two and a half decades of my professional life has been very heavily data-based. This uh, proposed book will combine data with political philosophy. And the latter is a new uh, direction in my work. Um, I will never be a political philosopher, uh, but um, a conversation with political philosophy, as I hope to show, uh, will, will illuminate some aspects of democracy in general, and Indian democracy in particular, which um, are worth thinking about. The attempt will be to place India's democratic experience against democratic theory, as should be clear by the first two points, both empirically driven theory, um, and the major figures there are Dahl, Shavorsky, Huntington, Verba, um, Scott added Sartori uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, I need to return to Sartori. And the normatively driven theory, uh, which really starts with Rousseau, I think, uh, about democracy, Rousseau's critique of democracy, represented democracy, John Stuart Mill, Ellen Ryan, John Rawls, uh, 
Ronald Dworkin, some more can be added to that list. Carl Schmidt, I think I find him extremely hard to read. Um, and I'm doing my best to understand what his arguments against liberalism are. Um, and perhaps they'll show up uh, in the next round of, of, of this, of this uh, presentation. Um, so um, with these preliminary remarks, uh, it should be clear that I'm going to place India against democratic theory of two types. Hmm? That's what I'm going to do here. Um, the cause, the causes of a democratic longevity, I'm, I might touch upon. I have written a fair, a good deal about it, democratic longevity in India. Uh, I'll certainly say a few things about that uh, here, but m perhaps in Q&A we can engage a bit more. You'll see why uh, it's going in the direction in which it is uh, in a moment. So what are the key elements of modern democratic theory against which we can judge any particular case, India or, or Ghana or others listed by Adam Shworsky? Once again, you'll see in a moment. The minimum requirement is electoral. And here uh, the proponents are Schumpeter and Dahl, um, and the two uh, two axes around which the minimum requirement works are contestation and participation. And contestation essentially means that people should be, citizens, parties, groups should be free to contest the incumbent on the assumption that the incumbent is likely to have a great deal of power to repress. Mm -hmm. And participation is how many people participate in elections, not simply how many people have the right to vote, that's certainly important, but how many people, um, in addition to having the right to vote, effectively exercise that right. Its greatest critic is Rousseau, we'll come to him later. The broader requirement is liberal freedoms between elections, that is to say going beyond elections would take you towards a broader understanding of democracy. And here, uh, freedom of expression, freedom of religion, freedom of association would matter a great deal. Um, and this is theory through John Stuart Mill, from John Stuart Mill through Robert Dahl, Ronald Dworkin, now Ellen um, Ryan, uh, and I'll, I'll summarize some of that. Another big argument, uh, Empirically driven argument is about income and democracies. Democracies can be established at low levels of income, but they survive on, uh, mostly, not only, mostly at high levels of income, uh, is the famous Shavorsky argument with Roots and Seymour Martin Lipsitz's famous 1958 article. Um, um, uh, Shavorsky's is actually an innovation on the Lipsitz, arg on Lipsitz argument. Um, because uh, Lipset didn't talk about establishment possible at low levels and survival at high levels. That's, that's an in innovation that Shvorsky has made. And who votes? Um, the, the Sidney Verba, uh, uh, my former colleague here uh, in the government department, uh, he has made the most interesting uh, contributions. The richer and the more educated vote much more than the, the poorer and the less educated. Um, and finally, on democratic consolidation, uh, you may not think of it as um, a key element of modern democratic theory. I just find it intuitively very interesting and very plausible, the, the two-turnover argument that Simon Huntington made. Namely, the incumbents, when voted out now, go out of power without resisting 
the turnover. And the next incumbents, who, the, those who were in opposition, when they voted out, they also go out of power hmm? without resisting. So that two turnover principle is the beginning of democratic consolidation, argued Samuel Huntington. Very intuitive argument. Um, and I find it very plausible as, as a way to think about, or as a very promising way to think about the beginning of democratic consolidation um, in, a, in a country. Now, if you go by, if you agree that these are the key elements of modern democratic theory, then India's electoral vibrancy is more or less beyond doubt. Since 1952, 16 national elections and 362 state elections. Since 1992, 3 million local legislators elected every five years, one third of which have to be, uh, would be women by law, have been women by law. Power has changed hands eight times in Delhi and tens of times at the state level. Scholars of India don't count anymore how many times power has changed hand at the state level. Uh, so the two turnover principle has been satisfied many times over. Uh, in 1952, 81 million votes were cast. In 2014, nearly 555 million votes were cast at the, in the parliamentary elections. I, uh, we won't have time in 40 minutes to go over all the state assembly elections also, the parliamentary elections. Turnouts routinely in excess of 60%, highest so far 66%, and lowest so far 19, uh, 55% in why did I miss that? I think it's 1957-62, uh, is among the lowest. Um, until 1989, following mainstream democratic theory, the richer and more educated citizens indeed voted more than the poorer and the less educated. Since 1989, defying democratic theory, the poor and the less educated have voted as much as or more than the, their more fortunate co-citizens. So, this is a rather remarkable defiance of, of democratic theory. I'm not sure whether other countries also have, other, other poorer countries which have democracy also have something similar. I expect that to be the case in Ghana and, and Benin, and, and, and you'll see the, the whole is Mauritius, and, um, et cetera. Election finance is the single biggest weakness of India's election process. But it's clear that while, while businesses finance elections often illegally, they are unable to determine election outcomes. Poorer political parties can and have won. And here are some examples. Ahmadmi Party in Delhi in 2013 and 2015, SP in UP in 2012, BSP in UP in 2007, etc., etc. Just examples. Many, many more examples can be given. Um, uh, something that we won't believe in American political system normally, right? That uh, those who are better funded normally win. Mm? Uh, not uh, maybe we can construct a probability-based argument in India. No one has done that, primarily because so much of election finance is illegal. All we can say is the two two richest parties of India are BJP and Congress Party. That's all we can say. But more than that, whether that's true in each each state of India, we can't say that. Some in some states, regional parties are richer and get more illegal finance. But other than that problem, India's elections, and one might say in 1980s, there was considerable skepticism about the integrity of the electoral process. And uh, 1987, uh, 19, 1989, um, nine, uh, some state assembly elections in 87, 88, 
1986, uh, some scholars began to doubt whether elections would continue to be free and fair in India. There was considerable stealing of elections in some parts of India at least, but now it's very clear that stealing is, has gone down to an, a negligible level. It's not, it's, not, it's not disappeared fully, but to a level that is statistically not significant, um, doesn't significantly change the outcome um, of an election. Okay. Um, now, the liberal deficits, which is the, the second part of, of, this, uh, of the title, what do we mean by that? And that is the newer part of my work. So uh, let's first start with what is liberalism. Is there one liberalism? And Ellen Ryan uh, wrote, we should be seeking to understand liberalisms rather than liberalism. Liberals uh, have, um, they disagree over the role of government, how, how, you know, libertarians, for example, want minimal government, uh, whereas many liberals would like government, governments to exercise greater power. Uh, on welfare state, which is which would be a very interventionist form of of, of government, according to libertarians, many many liberals would support that. Uh, John Stuart Mill made an argument about liberalism in terms of utility. The modern argument about liberalism in, is in terms of rights, not utility. Right? Uh, there is no post. There is no post William Riker uh, political scientist or or social or social scientist who's made a a utility-based argument about liberalism, hmm? as, as John Stuart Mill and, and the whole ilk at that time did. But, uh, it, but if you go through the many liberalisms, you'll find that they do agree on a certain minimal definition, with the a minimal definition that would run through, would be common to various liberalisms. Um, and so uh, it, the differences begin after that. After the minimum, after the, the score has been talked about, one is so I'll stick to that core: freedom of expression, no liberal would be against. Hmm? Freedom of religious practice, no liberal would be against, and that is actually the core of Donald Dworkin's argument about liberalism. Right? Uh, freedom of association, that citizens can associate freely, no liberal would be against. Right, and these are typically in modern liberalism. Uh, these, these rights or the, uh, uh, these freedoms would be enshrined in constitutions and laws, and it is through the constitutional and legal method that you would limit government. Limited government has been there as an argument since John Stuart Mill. Hmm? But it is through the ensh enshrining of these freedoms in constitutions and laws that you would limit um, um, uh, the executive. Now, these freedoms are very important between elections. They take you to a conception of democracy beyond elections. Why? And here is my summary of a very large literature. Once the thresholds of contestation and participation are satisfied, a democracy can attain higher quality, or to use Dahl's own formulation, it can become deeper. He called it a deeper, deeper... Um, Democracy in the later work, earlier work was, what was the term he used for, um, in the 19th? Polyarchy. Polyar deeper polyarchy, he would call, right? That after 1965, after the mid-1960s, civil rights and political, uh, politic uh, political rights revolutions of United States, United States became, became a deeper polyarchy. 
but the term he doesn't use in the later work. The later work he just uses the term democracy, 1986 onwards. So uh, on, to use Dahl's own formulation, in, democracy can become deeper if liberal freedoms between elections are available, that is, if citizens are free to speak, associate, and practice their faith. Dahl thus certainly states that we cannot have a democracy without free elections. That's not a, uh, without free elections, no, no, no elections, no democracy. The, that formulation is very clear. But he also suggests that a democracy would be deeper if non-electoral dimensions of freedom, not simply free vote, were also available. It is in this sense that liberalism is brought into the modern theory of democracy. It makes, that is to say, democracy deeper. India's record on these freedoms, I'll argue, not as strong as its electoral record. Liberal freedoms, though not absent, appear not to be robustly anchored. Threats repeatedly appear, especially at the current time. This will be my argument. So let's start um, with the, the theoretically surprising resilience of Indian democracy. So one key element of modern democratic theory is establishment versus resilience. Contemporary democratic theory believes that democracies can be established, as I said, at any levels of income, but they don't survive. They survive not only, I'll correct it, they survive mostly at high levels of income. And as Tariq said, yeah, it's not impossible to have a long-lasting democracy at low level of income, but the probability is very low. Wealth and democracy are friends. Hmm? In the West, universal franchise were introduced only after societies became rich, 19-teens roughly, hmm? around 19-teens and after. India is the longest surviving lower-income universal franchise democracy in history. Since 1952, only 18 months of democratic, national democratic suspension we have seen, plus regional democratic suspensions in the areas of insurgency, insurgencies which led to such regional democratic suspensions, especially in the north and uh, in the northeast, have never directly affected more than 5% of the country's population at a given moment. Indirect effects we can't measure. We know how many people live in these states. These are the, sta which, the states which have had an insurgency where democracy was suspended during periods of insurgency. That never adds up to more than 5% of India. The income yardstick uh, is best argued uh, or best uh, reasoned by Shrivarsky and his colleagues. The data set covered 141 countries between 50 and 90. Income was found to be the best predictor of democracy. It correctly predicted the type of regime in 77.5% of the cases. Only in 225 it did not. No other predictor, religion, colonial legacy, ethnic diversity, international political environment was as good on the whole. So this connects statistic. This statistic links up with what Tariq said which is that at low levels of income, he also talked about ethnic diversity. There's a lot of literature on that. And if you're, if you're interested, I'll talk about that as well. And religion and democracy too. Um, and colonial legacy and democracy too. But, but uh, essentially it means in 22.5% of the cases, income did not predict democracy. So yes, it's three-fourths, but one-fourth is not predictable through, through democracy. India is in this letter 22.5% set. Indeed, if we consider only decolonized democracies, countries, democracies that emerged from decolonization survived only in India. This is Shavorsky's list. 
Some would add a few more countries to this, but this, this here is the list. India, Mauritius, Belize, Jamaica, Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands and Vanuatu. Right? Uh, uh, Venezuela used to be on this list until the misfortunes of the last decade and a half. And, and Scott knows a great deal more about that than I do. <coughs> the most surprising case is India. According to Shavorsky, the odds against democracy in India were extremely high. All those countries, all other countries why, are, have higher per capita income than India. Um, and some other countries have defied the pattern on the obverse side. We should note this. If India is the biggest exception on the low income end, Singapore is the greatest surprise on the high income end, Singapore's per capita income today is higher than that of the fine of the colonial masters, UK, higher than that of France, higher than that of Germany. It's over $50,000, only seven or $8,000 behind the United States. And there is no scholar of democracy who thinks Singapore is a democracy. Most Singaporeans perhaps disagree with that, but... Uh, I'm just giving the scholarly perspective. <laughs> but it's not just one source of demo democratic skepticism that relates to India, namely no wealth, no democracy, right? There is another uh, skepticism theoretically embedded or embedded in political philosophy which I want to revive for our consideration. Um, and that can be summed up as no nation, no democracy. It has disappeared for some reason from modern democratic theory, contemporary democratic theory. This particular uh, line of argumentation uh, suggested that nationhood was essential for democracy. With its rampant social diversity is a key argument, long forgotten but significant and worth retrieving, as I said, was also that India could not be a nation. And since it could not be a nation, it could not be a democracy. Right? And here is the first clear articulation of that point. by John. This is John Stuart Mill going back to 1867. Quote, free institutions are next to impossible in a country made up of different nationalities. Among a people without fellow feeling, especially if they read and speak different languages, the united public opinion necessary to the working of representative government cannot exist. Unquote. Actually, this is a very um, uh, sharp point, John Stuart Mill. It's still partly true for the following reason. He is you can use modern concepts to draw a distinction between referenda and elections. Regular elections are not about, he is arguing, about who should be inside the nation and who should be ex excluded. Regular elections are about, about who should run the government. And if elections become an exercise through which you include uh, communities in the nation or regions in the nation or exclude regions from the nation, elections are likely to be bloody. That's what he's saying. Those are things which referenda handle, not elections. I think that's what he's saying. So I tried my best to understand what the point was. The point was that you need some, uh, some uh, agreement over the geographical boundaries, if not which communities are in, which communities are out, geographical boundaries of a nation we are not dis determining the boundaries of a nation in an election. We are only determining who will form the government to run that nation.
that I think is what is going on here. But this was the argument that he sp explicitly used against the possibility of democracy in India and representative government. Uh, those who have read more, more recent political theory uh, would also know that both James Mill and John Stuart Mill worked for East India Company's London office. Their title was examiner of dispatches. The father for 12 years and John Stuart Mill for 18 and a half years. So the engagement with India as, as an official of East India Company's London headquarter was very serious. Hmm? And a lot of democracy formulations then in, in, in his work, very sophisticated, in the father's work, rather crude, uh, in the son's work, quite sophisticated, relate to both Britain on one, on one hand and India on the other. This particular argument, John Stuart Mill, penetrated the highest levels of government in India, British government in India. Here is one of the most remarkable formulations by a high official, John Strachey. There is not, and here I'm giving you, I'm saying all this to set up an argument about how democracy became possible, right? So I'll, I'll suggest, you'll see that's where it's building towards. There is not, and never was in India, or even any country of India, possessing, uh, according to any European ideas, or any sort of unity, physical, political, social, religious, and that men of the Punjab, Bengal, the northwestern provinces, Madras, should ever feel that they belong to one Indian nation is impossible. And here's a punchline. You might, with as much reason and probability, look forward to a time when a single nation will have taken the place of various nations of Europe. Stretchy is drawing a distinction between a civilization and a nation. Europe is a civilization containing 20-odd nations. India is a civilization when it when the British left it to be 20 odd nations. A civilization is a cultural construct, a nation is a political construct. Mm? And therefore, in this fam the famous argument that Ernest Gellner made in the 1980s, a nation is like making a political roof over your cultural head. It's a very, very powerful formulation. L making a political roof over your cultural head. I don't have time. Uh, uh, 15 minutes left. I don't have time, but I think you should read this. Mark Twain, um, a, a towering literary figure of the last 150 years, traveled through India in 1894 and in 1897 published his re remarks on India. He was in India for six months. The book was called Following the Equator. It's not, it's not one of his best known books. And here is what he had to say. India had the first civilization, the first accumulation of material wealth, populous with deep thinkers and subtle intellects, My, had mines, woods, and fruitful soil. It would seem as though she, would, she should have kept the lead and should be today not the meek dependent of an alien master. If there had been but one India and one language, but there were 80 of them. Where there are 80 nations and several hundred governments fighting and quarreling must be the common business of life. Unity of purpose and policy are impossible. Patriotism can have no healthy growth. It's the same argument. We can think about India as a civilization. It's not a nation. In 1890s, Twain is saying that through his observations. This is a challenge that Mahatma Gandhi undertook and it became part of the freedom movement. It's not simply Gandhi's ideas. Gandhi's ideas put through a movement, through a party, taken to all corners of India. Hmm? And the response that Gandhi has, Gandhi's basically can be read today, using today's language, as trying to, as making 
a very serious attempt, perhaps one of the most formidable attempts ever made in history, at turning a civilization into a nation. That's the response here, right? That's not how he frames it, but you can use today's language concepts to read Gandhi that way. So first thing he does is he delinks language and nationhood, which was the dominant conception of nationhood in Europe, and begins to talk about a hyphenated Indian identity. The, Marat, Mara, the Maharashtrians, the Tamilians, the Bengalis, the Gujaratis, the, the Punjabis don't have to give up their language. Indians, the Indian nationhood will be constructed with the hyphen, the hyphen, we're using American language for it, he doesn't use that. They will be Punjabi Indians, Gujarati Indians, Tamil Indians, Bengali Indians, and you can extend it to Hindu Indians, Muslim Indians, etc. We don't have to, the so-called lower level identity does not require erasure. And a higher level identity can be created and a commitment to an Indian center of some sort, which politically can be created and can only be done politically, right? In, in this formulation, he was willing to argue or to, to make, was willing to make two arguments. Once he made that argument about language and nationhood, that you delink them. It's not that French speaking would have France and German speaking would have Germany, Italian speaking would have Italian, no, right? We will connect, we will hyphenate India. And even English, the language of, of India's colonial masters is acceptable as an Indian language, he argues. Here is a very famous formulation, I do not want my house to be walled on all sides and my windows to be stuffed. I want the cultures of all the lands to be blown about my house as freely as possible, but I refuse to be blown off my feet by any. This would be, using today's political theory, this would be called cosmopolitan rootedness. That being a cosmopolitan does not mean that you deracinate yourself completely. You can be rooted and you can still be open to the world. Hmm? Cosmopolitan rootedness is what is a term that, that someone like, for example, Charles Taylor would use for this position. Hmm? He also argued the English people who had been ruling India did not have to leave India. It is not necessary for us, to, for us to have us as our goal the expulsion of the English. If the English become Indianized, we can accommodate them. Just let them give up their arrogance. Let them accept Indian culture and they'll be part of India. They don't have to leave. They don't have to go back to London or Scotland. Right? And then he dealings religion and nation, which is not a big argument in Europe at that time, was becoming a big argument in India. In India, in Europe, religion and nationhood are not linked at that time in, in any big way. There are some simmerings of that in, in Ireland, etc., but, but there is no big argument in, in, the, in the public sphere. Gandhi himself was ambivalent about representative democracy, very, not very, uh, uh, Scott corrected me before coming here, maybe half Rousseauian, not very Rousseauian, half Rousseauian because he, he likes village republics, he likes democracy on a small scale, he doesn't, very, doesn't all that much like representative democracy at, on a continental scale, right? And he doesn't win that argument. He does not win that argument. Constituent assembly leaders create a representative democracy. Nehru wins that argument, right? But his contribution to nation making, and here is the point about the beginnings of democratic, the causes of, the, um, um, of democratic consolidation, the beginning of consolidation. His contribution to nation making creates the foundations of democracy in India is the point. 
and now its ideas are his, but those ideas become ideas of a whole movement. It's not just one person. A whole movement that goes to various corners of the world. So the nation that gets politically, then it gets politically created. Not fully successfully because Pakistan breaks away, but substantially successfully, if not fully successfully. Hmm? Okay, I don't have time for Nehru's nurturing. Um, I don't have time for this. Let's get to non-liberal deficits. Right? Um, these are standard liberal freedoms I've already spoken about. Freedom of expression, freedom of religious practice, and freedom of association that are common to virtually all conceptions of liberalism. Very important between elections, as I said. India is freest at the time of elections, short of inciting violence, virtually any argument can be made in the election campaigns. But once an elected government takes over, restrictions on basic liberal liberties are often placed. Intellectuals, writers, artists, students, non-governmental organizations can face serious harassment on grounds that they hurt the sentiments of certain groups or undermine national interest. In a multi-religious society, which has also had a deeply hierarchical system of centuries, some group or the other can always claim to be hurt. It would be surprising if that were not true. When group injury is claimed, governments rarely support the writer, the intellectual, the artist, the NGO. Either he has to withdraw his book, or he might be sent to jail, or he might have to leave the country. Here are some examples. These problems come to all kinds of government. Book bans quite frequent. Rushdie's satanic verses banned under Congress party um, because of Muslim rights. It was the first country in the world, a democracy, was the first country in the world to ban satanic verses. Emma um, um, Fussain, a leading painter, had to migrate out of India because of his paintings. Hindu right felt offended by Hussein's paintings and Muslim right felt offended by satanic verses. And instead of fighting Muslim right or Hindu right, Indian government banned the books of made it impossible for the, for, for the artists to, to stay in the country. But these problems become especially serious. I'm giving the most uh, iconic examples. The, the, right there. These, the, these, these are not just two people who have been harassed. Right? The, the list is very long. And this would include non-governmental organizations. List is very long. But these problems become especially serious when Hindu nationalists come to power, as is true today. Why? Because minorities automatically get added to the list of targets, not simply writers or artists. A Hindu-centric view of the nation leads to that. India for Hindu nationalists is a Hindu nation, which is a fundamentally unconstitutional idea. The constitution of India says India belongs to all religions, and equally so. Hindu nationalists say it, it's, it's, it's owned by Hindus, and non-Hindus are essentially secondary citizens. They say that in their ideological texts. The prime minister cannot say that. And neither the earlier Hindu nationalist prime minister, nor Mr. Modi, who's, who's clearly uh, on the right wing of the, of the movement, has said that. Mr. Modi has actually argued repeatedly the constitution is the only sacred document of India. A, a proposition often made, but his commitment to that, one has doubts about. That proposition. And then muscular nationalism also emerges, threatening to exclude dissenters. Attack on liberal critics and dissenters. 
right, is it goes with the idea of muscular nationalism. Liberalism here in this in muscular in the context of muscular nationalism, as opposed to more less sharp, sharp edged nationalism, more accommodative nationalism, which would be the Gandhi Nehru kind of Ambedkar kind of nationalism. Um, in this sharp edge version of nationalism, liberalism becomes a form of anti-nationalism, a term that Mr. Modi has used, right? It becomes a form of anti-nationalism. It becomes actually an attack on the nation. Sometimes what I write in my columns becomes an anti-national critique of, of, the, uh, of India. No, it's a critique of the government. It's not a critique of India. But this line is, quickly disappears when you have this kind of formulation of politics and of nationhood. Liberal retrenchment under Modi, my last five minutes. Here are the examples. Lynchings. Car protection, around car protection, beef eating, quite similar to lynchings of blacks in American South, which I've been studying for some time now, and I'll say a bit more, between 1880, after the end of Reconstruction, um, until nine, roughly 1930. There are some lynchings after 1930, but there's a huge tapering off in the 1920s. Ghalwapsi, home return, what did it mean? Forcible reconversion of Muslims and Christians back to Hinduism. Love Jihad, an interesting term. Coined by the, I've been told this was not coined by him, certainly popularized by the existing chief minister of Uttar Pradesh, India's largest state, equal to Brazil. Hmm? And it, it attempts to seek an end to Muslim men marrying Hindu women, not vice versa. There is no problem with Hindu men marrying Muslim women, incidentally, because they become part of Hindu fold. But if Muslim men marry Hindu women, since the body of a woman is the site of cultural purity in this argument, Right? What happens is the Muslim men marrying Hindu women becomes then a departure from the Hindu core. Incidentally, in, there was no problem in American South either when, when white men developed desire for black women. The problem was when black men developed desire for, 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 for white women. The sexual politics is roughly the same. And finally, the Bharat Mata and use of sedition law, anyone who followed the debate around a sedition charge against a student union president, a sedition charge, the highest crime. Why? Because the student union president was present in a meeting where some people said, Bharat ke tukde tukde karo, let India break up into pieces. Whether he said that, it's not clear. He was simply present in that meeting. And because he was student union leader, a case of sedition was launched, was, was, was initiated by the government. It's not going to go anywhere legally, but it can harass the person for years. It will not go anywhere legally. It's not clear. You can prove sedition charge on, on, on that basis. Now, role of courts is, a, is a, if you see liberal political theory, uh, it emphasizes more than any branch of political philosophy, the role of courts. Because the right, the, the freedom of expression, freedom of religious practice, freedom of association, minority rights, all these are constitutionally enshrined, typically in democracy, and the institution that adjudicates on that, that, that understands and implements what the constitution wants is the court. It's not the legislature, it's not the executive. 
So judiciary, the role of judiciary therefore very, becomes extremely important in liberal democracy. Courts in India have overturned government decisions and even, even as, far, even as, as, as um, recently as, as in August, they overturned the government decision by 9-0 bench, a nine-judge bench unanimously turned down uh, a rather uh, drastic attempt by, by the government to curtail freedoms. Um, but what we should note is that the executive always has the upper hand in short to medium run. Citizens, uh, unless they are very, the, uh, very well resourced, find it extremely hard to fight the government. Right? through courts. Non-governmental organizations might not have the resource to fight the might of the government and government's lawyers, government's resources, etc. So in the short to medium run, executive attacks on freedom would always have the upper hand. It's in the long run that the government can be overturned, government decisions can be overturned. So yes, the judiciary has served Indian citizens on the whole well, but the dice is not is, is turned against citizens if judiciary is the only way they can achieve their freedom, right? So in the last one minute then, what am I saying? Lynchings I can't talk much about. I, the argument that I have is that Indian lynchings today are not like Indonesian lynchings. Tariq and I met first in Jakarta. Um, um, are not like Indonesian lynchings, which have no ethnic or religious core, not connected to the idea of the nation. Indian lynchings of the last two years, starting in September 2050, last two years, two years now, are aimed at a majoritarian order, politically, at securing majority. Their primary target is Muslims of India. It's not anyone or everyone. It's Muslims of India. Secondary target is Dalits of India. Conclusion. Here is my model for this book. I don't know whether I can rise up to what Samuel Huntington wrote in American Democracy. It's a model for a lot of political scientists. It's a model for me. This book, uh, that's the book I want to write about Indian democracy. The last two sentences of, of Samuel Huntington's The Promise of Disharmony, published in 1982, are, are some of the most remarkable sentences I have read. Um, uh, they are not a play on words. They are very profound. Critics say America is a lie because its reality falls so short of its ideals. They are wrong. America is not a lie. America is a disappointment. But it can be a disappointment only because it's also a hope. Now, this is not a play, play with words. Why? Because the basic argument of the book was, been critiqued by, well by some, some friends, but the basic argument of the book was there is a gap between America's ideals and America's realities. America started with the founding contradiction, a country built on freedom and, e and equality also had slavery. S slaves are neither equal nor free, right? So, but the gap between ideals and realities has been shrinking, he argues, right? So, right? Uh, but it's a disappointment. Why? It's a disappointment because this gap should have been narrower should have been narrower by now after 200 years, or 200 odd years, should have been narrower 200 years by the time he wrote actually, almost 200 years. Um, but it can be narrowed further, hence it's a hope. So, so this is what the, the last sentence of, the, of that book are. India's democratic credentials are not in doubt. 
at India's level of income in particular, no democracy has ever survived for seven decades. If you look, if you, if you think of India's per capita income in 1947, at today's prices, I'm calculating that. I will calculate that next year when I write the book. I don't think it will be more than $200. And now it's about $1,700, $1,800. In this range, $200 to $1,800, this, this no democracy has ever lasted for seven decades. So, but India has done much better as an electoral democracy, substantially less well as a liberal democracy. I hope I've convinced you. And if not, we'll, we'll talk in Q&A. And the deepening of democracy minimally requires a more robust anchoring of liberal freedoms. More robust anchoring, I say, I, I, I have some arguments about why this will take some time. This is a political project. We are doing, we have, we are involved in a project, my team in India, where we are asking people, for example, are Muslims not Indians? Asking people, for example, when the national anthem is played, should it be required that everyone stand up? We are asking people, for example, if those don't, who don't stand up in cinema theaters when the national anthem is played, should they be punished? So we are trying to get the base, the social foundation of liberalism in India. The first four states suggest the foundations are shaky. Are shaky, right? Um, and the last point, of course, is that, that uh, even the electoral vibrancy of India would be greater, would be, uh, uh, would be more impressive, would be more robust if election finance can be cleaned up. It's very murky. And a lot of us have thought about, about it. It's not clear how to do it. There are some good promising ideas. It's not clear that the powerful will listen to us on how to clean up the election finance. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Washu. Uh, that was great. I'm going to begin with a few provocations, um, and then I want to hear from hopefully a lot of you. Here are my three provocations. First, I mean, I, I really think this is going to be a great book. Um, the first one is about theory. Um, I, uh, at least some strains of political theory, including in my reading Dahl, would say that these liberal rights are not necessary only for deepening democracy. They are a defining feature of democracy. So without them, you do not have democracy. So my reading of Dahl might be a little bit different than yours, but that, you know, this, the, in polyarchy, in the first few pages, he outlines, you know, your liberal rights as a defining feature of what he then called polyarchy, and subsequently he dropped that, you know, that weird word that no one else in political science or politics has ever used in return for the word democracy. 1986 book doesn't use it at all, actually. Or, or uses it two, three times only, yeah. yeah the so polyarchy. That's, okay. that's the first one. Um, the, the second one, you know, I mean, I would say that roughly your knowledge of India is 64 quadrillion times greater than mine. But let me still push you a little bit. You closed by saying that India's democratic credentials are not in doubt. I completely agree, and, and you know, my class has heard us talking about this, that India's success as a democracy is extraordinary. But at the same time, I mean, there are so many places in the world where democracy has eroded 
and even broken down. Um, and if the illiberal turn continues, right, um, the, 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 your statement that its democratic credentials are not in doubt might be in doubt. I mean, I think your own evidence suggests that to an increasing, although not alarming, degree that India's democratic credentials are in doubt if we think that democracy has to include the liberal rights, as I do and many others do. And the third is just, I mean, it's a very small point, um, but in the U.S., um, in many states, uh, many states it was illegal for black men, for, for, for any, any, any intra-racial marriage was illegal in many southern states. So I think in that respect, the situation in India is it's a little different. There's a really wonderful recent movie about this loving. I think it came out maybe a couple of years ago, in which a white man was prosecuted for trying to marry a black woman. And that was, in the South, it was, it was a complete abomination, of course, on humanitarian and democratic grounds. But that's so you might want to just, you know. OK, thanks. Um, do you want me to start with that or collect? Let's do, let's, uh, yeah. How much time do we have? Uh, We've got until 5.30, so, um, and okay. I, you know, I've lived in Latin America for five years, so I'm not a rigid timekeeper, so <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll let people go at 5.30 if they need to go, but we'll carry on the okay. conversation. So let's start with the third one first. Uh, it's true that uh, if, for example, you read Obama's, uh, um, dreams from my father, and he describes uh, his uh, mother's marriage to a black man, um, uh, and he said that, if I remember correctly, I have it, uh, I've written about this somewhere, and in 30 odd states of America in 1962 when he was born, 61 I think, in 32 states of America my mother would have had either to abort me. Um, or would have faced uh, horrible consequences, um, or uh, my father, my mother and my father both. Uh, and um, it is just as well that I was born in Hawaii, where that law didn't uh, operate, where, where interracial marriages were legal. 32 st states, he says, it was illegal, even as late as 1962. Right, so that's not the situation in India. So I take that correction. Uh, and uh, while what I was describing, um, uh, the love jihad idea is not legally enshrined. You're right. It's a political movement. It's not legally enshrined. And uh, it's hard for me to imagine it, it would get legally enshrined. Uh, uh, so in that sense, uh, the difference is clear, I think, and you're right about that. And that, that uh, uh, a precise reformulation of that point will require acknowledgement of, of the third, third cr uh, criticism that Scott's making. <laughs> uh, first and second uh, points are connected. Um, 
Now, um, if you believe that liberal freedoms define a democracy and not contestation and, and participation. No, all three. There were only two axes in polyarchy. And, and in the, uh, so we're reading it differently. And the 1986 book, what is it, uh, For and Against Arguments, uh, For and Against Democracy, I think, 1986 book, which is a fuller development of the argument. Then there are two, three others after that. I, I read that, uh, there's an argument about civil society there, and I, I, he begins to talk about a more meaningful democracy or higher quality democracy. So, for example, in polyarchy, he says America was a democracy till the mid-1960s, but it became a deeper polyarchy after the, the revolution of the mid-1960s, the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. He doesn't say that before that America was not a democracy. So, uh, so... If we can, if we say, if we believe that liberal freedoms define a democracy in addition to contestation and participation, if we believe that, then India's record is even poorer than what than 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 uh, what I presented here. Uh, but let's let's look at that more carefully. My sense is that's a deepening requirement. That is not an existential requirement. And so existentially, it's those two axes on, on X and Y. And, 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 and deepening adds a third dimension where liberal freedoms are important. That's how I've read it. Now, um, India is going through an illiberal turn. There is no doubt, uh, which I have listed for you, the, the, the liberal retrenchment that I called under Modi. Uh, if Mr. Modi is re-elected uh, in a year and a half, we really don't know what kind of India we'll have. And at that point, maybe uh, the, the, the sentence that you highlighted would need uh, a serious reformulation. I should perhaps say that it has been, uh, the democratic credentials so far have not been in doubt. We've had, India's had an Hindu nationalist government too, from 98 to 2004, the attack on liberal freedoms, there was, there was a, a retrenchment there too, but, but uh, it, was, it couldn't be called a right-wing government. It was a right-of-center government. And this government begins to feel like it's a right-wing government. Right? It, it has a very muscular nationalism um, defining it, and it sees liberals as unpatriotic, as... as a, so if, if, you, if you think of Carl Schmitt's argument about politics is only about friends and enemies, right? it's a very dangerous argument, I think. And as you read Carl Schmitt, then he, he wants to separate it from why politics has to be about friends and enemies. Right? Has to be. And that's not our view of politics. Right? That's the view of Modi, it seems. That you have friends or enemies. Right? Now, um, uh, enemies must be attacked in all kinds of ways. Uh, I don't think the claim is they should be killed. No. Let the, whatever the ground troopers are doing, uh, foot soldiers are doing, I don't think we can say Mr. Modi is doing that. That cannot be the argument. But certainly in the environment that exists, it's possible for foot soldiers to do what they're doing. It's possible for them to lynch and then, then um, make a video of that and WhatsApp it. Right? It's a, they are simply not afraid. They lynch the person, 
they videotape that lynching or people all around them don't intervene to stop the lynching. Some are clearly sympathetic, right? And they put it on WhatsApp and then, then hundreds of thousands of people are watching it. Now, this is dangerous. This is very dangerous. And if it's not contained, I'm not sure it cannot be contained or it will not be contained. But, and one variable there, very important variable is there, variable there would be something like what happened in, in American elections uh, two nights ago. Um, if, if, if all populists worry about elections, very few populists are there who would suspend elections. Election is the source of legitimacy. That is the defining feature of populism. Everything else does not matter in politics. This, the, the, the regulatory institutions do not matter. The courts do not matter. The press does not matter. Elections give you the power to, to overrun all institutions. Right? If the electoral news over the next few weeks from states of India where the state elections are, are uh, is news is negative, there is reason to believe this trend will be contained. If the news is in favor of uh, BJP and Mr. Modi, there is reason to be very worried about the fate of Indian democracy. That's my answer to your, three to, uh, your, your the, this, the great uh, the second question. Thank you. Thank you for this uh, wonderful, learned uh, talk, where, which was learned both about uh, political theory and about uh, India. So I have two questions. I am going to leave your talk thinking that not only is India a really improbable democracy, but it is an improbable nation. And yet you seem to think that India's continued nationhood is not in doubt. Whereas I look around the world and I see Catalonia, I see, you know, even the Scottish want their independence, and I think, well, if Catalonia wants its independence, what is to say that Kerala <coughs> won't want its independence? Or Maharashtra, <coughs> why do you think that this concept of Indian nation is uh, durable going forward? So that's, that's question one. Then if I can abuse, I'll ask question two. So, uh, you know, I was thinking about, uh, you know, Scott's question. You know, India, as you say, right, it's a very poor country, ethnically diverse, etc. And there are these disturbing trends that are happening within it. And then I think about our own country here in the United States, which is one of the, the world's richest and oldest democracy, and I see similar trends, maybe not as extreme, but certainly we, the, you know, the gap between American uh, ideals and reality may be getting wider. And I think if things may be getting worse in the richest democracy, <coughs> what hope is there for the world's poorest democracy? Maybe you should just be happy with what you have. Okay, that's <laughs> So on, on nationhood, um, there is very good data now. It's robust. Uh, re repeated rounds. Uh, the, most, the most recent rounds are, are, are under my... In, in, by my collaborator, uh, institutions that are collaborating with me. So we get the following, that um, uh, it's a standard question we ask in, you know, in World Value Survey or when Stepan was alive and Linz were alive, they, they, were, they, they use this question in many countries in which, and they were interested in several countries, not in, in just one. So the question uh, asks the following, are you only Indian? So there will be versions of that in different places. Are you both Indian? Are you equally Indian and regional? Are you only Indian? Are you only regional? 
are you are you both are you equally indian and regional are you more regional than indian are you more indian than regional none of the above this has been done everywhere right they so in india this has been done now since 2004 about five times sixth round will be mine and the the uh, about 30 about one third of india says only indian which is very interesting incidentally because we have data on other country multi ethnic country only indian um those who say only regional which would be a matter of some concern right are 12 to 15% repeatedly repeatedly and then those three category the two other categories more regional than indian more indian than regional i have never i could never persuade al stepan that you should drop this category these two this not very easy you know for a surveyor to go and and ask this question and get what might be called stability around the, the responses but it they turn out to be stable so last conversation with al stepan who said but you saying there's no stability about the, the, look at the, the data the data is giving very stable results right so basically you add up those categories which would not be threatening they are about 70 to 75% 12 to 15% only regional and roughly 10% say i don't know i can't answer none of them. they in all surveys so now had it been only one shot we would not have known what to make of it but there've been several shots of it and there is a certain stability in in this data indeed those who say they are only indian that proportion seems to be rising that's why the um uh, in it, it's also true that stepan lins work when it asks the same question in in catalonia uh they also said that they are spanish and catalonians now it turning out to be actually right right catalonia it's not that all of catalonia is breaking half of catalonia is not does not want to leave madrid one half wants to leave madrid right that appears to be the case hmm? um scotland reached up to 49% couldn't cross 50% well maybe it can break up but you know um but but in india's break up i don't see that as a serious possibility the issue is basically the issue is kashmir and i've written about it i just chaired a seminar 3 days ago here at harvard on that a very interesting new argument i that uh, if you simply talk about the loyalties in kashmir valley which is 9% of all of kashmir incidentally the old state i think the, their loyalty to india is seriously in doubt no doubt i don't think there is uh, no one should say their loyalty to india is 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 um is strong it's not even weak perhaps uh it's a, a lot of it lot of uh, kashmir valleys does not have any loyalty to india and that is a challenge india has to deal with but beyond that i would not be very alarmed about the state of the nation at this point whether even if mr modi is reelected and all kinds of uh, problems arise they won't be regionally concentrated which is when breakup becomes this is this is this is the, the most interesting part of the lin stepan argument right the state when they develop the concept state nation 
if diversity is regionally concentrated, not, not diversity all over the country, then the threat to the nation is greater. So when American South started saying they are culturally distinct from the North, and, re, and slavery defines the culture of the South, right? Then it becomes a very serious threat, right? And then it was geographically concentrated, right? But if it's not geographically concentrated, ethnic diversity is not. This incidentally, this argument which we now in our field we make regularly is anticipated by Dahl in Chapter Four of Polyarchy, that having many ethnicities is better than having two, for democracy argues. It's a, he, he doesn't fully develop it, but he anticipates that. And now it's part of our, our ethnic conflict uh, scholarly tapestry. Hmm. Similar, and I think the similar trends in, trends in the US, that's, that's a, actually that's the lit literature about populism which is picking it up. Most of us have now come to see Mr. Modi as a populist, uh, a, a very interesting version of right and left combined as opposed to clearly right. Um, and uh, and the populist, why so many countries are heading towards populism is an interesting question. This is a question which cannot be, there is a wave of some kind and the, the foundations of that wave have to be understood. There is something about liberal democracy which has populism in its womb. I think that that statement is to be taken seriously. The populists are not saying they are not democrats, they think they are representing the people authentically. That's what they're saying. They're representing the people authentically, and liberal elites are not, right? So, so th that's uh, an India, and both America and India are going through a populist phase at this point. Yes, thank you. Thank you for a great talk. Uh, thank my you. question is, uh, where would you place the role of uh, law enforcement agencies? and their relationship with the state in ensuring or curtailing liberal freedoms. Because we've seen several examples of, uh, let's say, Muslim men being apprehended for crimes they did not commit and the court, you know, uh, uh, releasing them. Uh, there have also, there's also been a study of uh, several hundreds of uh, small-scale cases uh, after the Gujarat riots where the court and the police have uh, asked the parties to clearly go for a biased settlement. So how does that relationship uh, work out for ensuring or curtailing freedoms? Oh, it's a great threat to democracy. It is. But, but you should note that law enforcement in BJP rule states works differently. Law enforcement in India is a state matter under Indian federal laws. So when the state is not ruled by the BJP, the everyday practices of, of police change. When it's ruled by the BJP, the everyday practices of the police become very anti-Muslim. So the police is following political masters, right? And, and, and one of the arguments that I have had and many of our friends have written about is can we figure out a way to separate the police from its political masters? It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. But please remember, the, because democracy is relatively open-ended, it's not clear the BJP would rule Gujarat forever. It was the communists lost West Bengal after 30 years, and they now can't even come back. They are not even, they can't, I know quite a number of them. They don't even think the possibility exists now of coming back for the next many years, right? We have to see what, happen, what happens in Gujarat elections next, next month. 
and maybe next month BJP would not be would not lose. Maybe it will lose five years later. But the the everyday practices of law enforcement of the police in India depend heavily on the political regime. Thank you for that fascinating talk. Uh, I'm at the Ed School, and my interest in democracy stems from studying uh, educational progress and the relation to the type of government. I see. The more I see the countries that have managed to overhaul their education systems and actually rise to the very top, I see South Korea, I see Singapore, I see China, countries with more authoritarian regimes. And it makes me wonder why fragmented democracies like India and US struggle so much to move the needle. It's almost intuitive that in democracies there will be innovation, there will be free thinking, but these countries really have struggled to make systemic changes. So I'm just curious about Systemic changes in education. In education, yes. That's absolutely correct. Uh, Myron Wiener wrote a famous book about this, that uh, the struggle in America was also very, very long and deep too. Uh, um, and um, some states did better and some states did very badly and it's only in the 1930s he argues that the commitment to universal education in America becomes all uh, nationwide. Um, well, one answer is uh, I don't study this but uh, I of course listen to a lot of colleagues and fellow scholars who study education because it's such an important subject and it's the political economy of it. And one answer simply is that the legitimacy, let me, let me put it differently. Isaiah Berlin, whom I didn't mention here, a great political philosopher, talked about his, his most famous essay is called Two Concepts of Liberty. Negative liberty is what we call democracy, which is an absence of restraints on other, uh, by the state or others on you. You decide what to do, right? But there is also this concept positive liberty, which is not rest, absence of restraints from, but some towards something, freedom towards something, right? And if you read the arguments of Lee Kuan Yew or read the arguments of uh, the Soviet time, right, by Soviet Union during this, when Soviet Union existed, they argued the negative liberty is a bourgeois liberty. It's just based, Karl Marx made this argument. It's just, it's just not meaningful when so many people are ill-educated and poor, etc. Positive liberty, in some interpretation of Isaiah Berlin, means that people are educated and healthy. Lee Kuan Yew makes this argument fairly explicitly. Singapore is a much more meaningful democracy, according to this, you saw that. Singapore is the greatest exception on the high income side. At $50,000 per capita, it's the only non-oil rich country which is undemocratic. Lee Kuan Yew's argument was, no, the kind of democracy you're talking about, the kind of democracy that exists in India is, has, is meaningless. I am, my, my citizens are all educated and all healthy. This is an argument uh, that, uh, that uh, Soviet leaders made. And they, they, some of them framed it in terms of positive liberty. So their legitimacy, the legitimacy of these regimes they're talking about is based on delivering health and education and in many cases income. Now, now, in China's case, income, in South Korea's case, income, right? The legitimacy is based on that. The legitimacy of this system or democracy is not based on delivering health and education unless that becomes a political issue and governments can be thrown out on that. Their political leg legitimacy is based on what elects them to power. 
you turn education and health into a, a something that would defeat incumbents and it will change. That is what Amartya has been trying to do. It has not become an issue in elections yet. And why it's, it, that remains a mystery to some extent. I have some arguments about that, some very uh, short arguments about not something not, I have, uh, not something I have deeply researched. But, but Amartya would like education and health to be an election issue, but they have never been in India. And they were not in America as before uh, uh, until 1930s. 1930s. It's not clear in 1930s the, the point that in the chapter of Wiener's comparative account, it's not clear it's because of de demand from below. It's because of certain elite commitment emerging by 1930s to the idea of universal education. Thank you. Um, I'm also a student at the Ed School, and I'm really intrigued by the argument on relationship between wealth and uh, democracy. democracy. Um, I'm interested in uh, understanding how income uh, effects in certain states of India, especially uh, high-income states in India, and also these are states with uh, very well-developed public services. Uh, if these states, uh, if the gap between these states uh, and the national level increases, what implications would it have on the nationhood of the country? So that's an argument about nationhood, not not democracy, right? Yeah. Here, here, what you want to the outcome variable you're interested in is is is, uh, is um, resilience of nationhood, right? As income disparities increase. Um, it's a very good question. Um, uh, a famous uh, Amartya Sen line is that India is part California and part Sub-Saharan Africa. It's a very famous line he wrote. And there is some truth to that, right? I'm not sure it's exact. Analogies don't have to be perfect. Analogies have to, have to generate an image which is intuitively plausible, right? It's not the perfection or precision of an analogy which makes an analogy great, it's what it conveys in a, you know, even if it's slightly imprecise, right? So, um, um, can, can, can California's and, and Afri sub-Saharan African states exist in one nation called India, right? Uh, is what you're asking. And um, uh, so far, the surveys that I cited do not show that the poorer states are less, have, have, have lesser commitment to Indian nationhood, right? The idea that the 33% who say they're only Indian, they're only slightly higher in high-income states on the whole. Not much higher. It's statistically, it's not a very big deal. I don't, I don't, I'm not even sure they'll satisfy chi-square tests, right? So I, that's not how we've done it. So, I, you know, but I, we can easily run it and we can see it. So um, um, I don't think thus far income differentials have had an, have had, uh, an identifiable uh, impact on commitment to the nation. It's Scott's, uh, he's sharing it, so he will tell you whether a follow-up is possible. <laughs> mm. That was a crisp, crisp 
So what follow-up could be better? Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.